Good morning, church. Is this on? Can you hear me? Yeah, good. Okay. Good to be with you. My name is Dean Barham. If you're just joining us, I'm the lead minister here. I want to welcome you to the AM Church of Christ. Please uh, hang out with us a little bit. Go grab some coffee at the Welcome Center and give us a chance to meet you. Also, I just want to say a, a special thank you to uh, Kent for leading us in that prayer time about the kind of thing that all of us are thinking about right now. Um, I, I was thinking on the way here this morning about, you know, all that situation and something I heard growing up a lot when I was little. Uh, it was often in, in the communion time, but it was sometimes at the beginning of worship, people would say something like, as we come in to worship God, please put all of the cares and the thoughts of your life or whatever's going on in your world away. And I understand the thought behind that, and maybe there's something to it. At the same time, I kind of think, <laughs> this is proving the point. I, I, I kind of think that's the opposite. I think it's the opposite of what we ought to do. I can't think of a better place to bring whatever we have on our heart and our mind than worship. Whether we're passionate about something, whether we're grieving about something. You know, I, I think about how the songs sound different to me today when I'm thinking about our Ukrainian brothers and sisters, right? So what, what a better thing to do to actually bring whatever you have and just bring it to worship. Like God already knows it's there. Why, why do we segment it out? Why do we compartmentalize it? Let's just bring it all there. And that really is the point of, of this whole series, really. We, we want to bring everything we have, our entire life, to God. And we want God to teach us more about what it looks like to have a transformed life that's going to make a difference in the lives of other people. So for this series, we got a couple weeks left. We're, we're, we're just asking God to show us how did Jesus train to live the extraordinary life that he lived. And we've looked at different ways and different avenues that Jesus has had a rhythm for his spiritual training program. And I want to look at one more today. If you have your Bibles, we're in uh, Luke chapter 4. We start in verse 14. We've looked at passages right before this and passages right after this, even alluded at some point in time to this one. This is Jesus' kind of opening mission statement sermon in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. This is the gospel of our Lord. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went up to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what you heard, we heard you did in Capernaum. 
Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years. And there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever stopped to just think about the significance of everyday routine moments in your life? You think about that? We get up in the morning and we just start doing things. We, we have a routine. Coffee is always in mind. There may be something else in here. There's always a routine. And, and there are all of these activities that we do that are repetitive. We don't even think about them. It is routine to us. But do we ever stop for a moment and ask, is there a significance behind the habits and routine of our lives? I remember I was doing a wedding one time and I was watching as the couple came up and the father of the bride put her hands into the waiting groom's hands and as I was watching them I remember the story they told me about how they met it was a routine everyday moment they were doing what they did all the time on I think it was a Saturday that time of year and they were at the place they would always be at that time of year they were on a softball field my friend Kevin showed up as he always did on a day like that. He had his glove in his hand, he had his cleats tied, he had the dusty ball cap pulled down over his eyes, and as he began to warm up there in the infield, he had no idea in this routine, everyday moment that he'd done a hundred times before that his entire life was about to change. Of course, he met a young lady. He would later tell me, oh, I, I remember meeting her. She was cute and she was kind of funny, but beyond that, he didn't think a lot about it. Sometimes, though, you're in a significant moment and you do get it. Because on the day they met, Patty, his now wife, leaned over to her friend and said, that's the man I'm going to marry. <laughs> and here they were, two years later, standing in front of me, exchanging vows. How often do we think about the incredible potential significance of routine, everyday moments? What about this one right here? Can you think about this? Why do we gather here in this church building week in and week out? Uh, What is it that we're looking to see and to experience? I, I know for me, often when I grew up and I would be in a room like this one gathered for worship, a lot of the reason why I'm just being honest with you was guilt, uh, was fear, was a sense of duty, right? Somehow I got the idea, I don't think people were trying to do this, but I somehow got the idea that if I didn't show up to enough of these, that the fires of hell were waiting for me. And so I, you know, I grew out of that. I remember thinking, no, no, this is really something. I want to live a better life, and this is helpful to me. But 
I remember thinking kind of the next image for what this gathering was about is really kind of like a spiritual version of an old high school pep rally or, or I don't know, a spiritual yell practice perhaps. And we're going to get fired up and we're getting prepared to then go out the next day into the real world. That's a little bit better, but I'm, I'm still thinking that's a pretty immature view of what our gathering is here, especially for me because If I saw it as an old kind of pep rally, spiritually speaking, then I found myself time and again becoming the critic of the rally, right? And of course, if the coach didn't inspire me enough or the one that led the yells didn't get me going enough in the worship experience, I had some things to say. So I just want to think for a moment as we come to Jesus and watch how he trained and he lived, is there a Is there a broader vision for what we do when we gather here week in and week out? One of the things that we see in this text right away, one of the things we see here, is that Jesus, one of the core ways in which Jesus trained, is Jesus gathered in this place. Literally, actually, by the way, he gathered in this thing they called a synagogue. And by the way, that's an actual image of the ruins of the Capernaum synagogue in Israel from the first century. If you look at the next verse, we stopped in verse 20. If you look in verse 31, that's where he went next. Like he literally was there. And you see that Jesus, as part of the shaping of his life, gathered in experiences like this, much smaller, but he gathered in this thing we call the synagogue. By the way, one of the things we know about synagogue, it was not commanded anywhere in the Old Testament. You know that? There is no text you can look at that says, here, establish the synagogue. You get all sorts of things about setting up the temple. There was no, no instructions for setting up the synagogue, no command to go do it. And I think it's interesting that Jesus fully gives himself to what is a healthy and good tradition of the people of God, even though it wasn't right there in the pages of scripture. He leaned into that existing healthy tradition. And again, we've seen this before. I've told you several times, one of the ways to kind of hack the series, so to speak, is look for the places in the New Testament where it said Jesus did things by routine, custom, or habit. So back in chapter two, it said that his family went up to the festival of the Passover as was their custom. And then at the end of the book, how did Judas know where to go betray him? It says he went to the Mount of Olives as usual. And we talked a while back about Jesus going out for solitude and connection with God and prayer. And it says he often withdrew to desert, lonely, wilderness places to pray. And then did you catch the language here? It says he came to the synagogue as was his custom. If it was Saturday, Jesus was gathering in the spiritual community of their version of church. Synagogue literally just means to gather together as a people. It is the Jewish version of the word that maybe you've heard before for church, ecclesia, the called out assembly. It's an assembly of people. And Jesus fully gave himself to this assembly. What went on there? Oh, here's the thing. Just like any other spiritual community gathering, it will have its own variations, but we do have some sense of what happened in a first century synagogue worship. Now, some of this is, became even more fixed after the temple was destroyed in AD 70, 
But we know that pretty much there would be something like this going on in Jesus' worship service. One of the first things they would do is they would pray and read and confess together what we now know as the Shema. Shema is Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And they confess that together as the people of God. In fact, if you want to see somebody unpack this beautifully, Scott McKnight writes a book called The Jesus Creed and talks about how Jesus' life was shaped by praying this prayer over the course of his life. So much so that when he's asked what his great, the greatest command is, this is what he quotes the Shema and then adds to it from Leviticus as well. This is part of their, their worship. There's a thing that came to be known as the 18 benedictions. Don't know if there were exactly 18 at the time of Jesus, but here's the thing to think about. When Jesus went to worship, they didn't just get up and kind of spontaneously pray off the top of their head. I suspect there were some of that, but they would pray scripture and they would pray prayers that had been prayed for years before that time. And there were 18 of them. By the way, after Christianity took root and there was this division with Judaism and Christianity, they added a 19th to curse you. <laughs> the 19th benediction is a cursing of Christians, and it's in synagogue worship by the end of the first century. There was a priestly blessing. We're not totally certain whether this was an early first century or not, but we get a sense that it was probably there. You've heard the blessing before, right? In Numbers chapter 6, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. There was, that was done at some point in time in there. We absolutely know for sure, and we see this right here in Scripture, that Scripture was read. Extensive readings of Scripture. They would read through the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, again and again. And then they would do a reading from the prophets. And often there would be reading from the writings because they would literally pray the Psalms in their worship. And we know there was a period of time, what we would call a sermon, there would be instruction, sometimes even literally translation of the scripture. They're saturated in the story of God. And then there was somebody there whose job it was to take care of the offering that was given and to distribute it to the needy in the community. And then lastly, this one is interesting to me, um, there, was, there was a prayer of praise and yearning and longing for the coming of the kingdom of God. And if you look closely at it, Early on, that was started early on in the first century. It, there are parts of it that sound very similar. Jesus is much more personal, very similar to the prayer that we now know as the Lord's Prayer. And every Saturday, Jesus fully gave himself to the rhythm and the routine and the habit of gathering with the people of God, reading Scripture, praying Scripture, confessing their lives to God, and then going out in service into the community. This is what it looked like week in and week out. And when we look at this, this is part of what I think about, this is why we're here. Why? It, among other things, we are here to practice language that literally creates worlds. We practice language that creates and recreates worlds. Maybe you've heard this image before. Or this language before, often attributed to the philosopher Wittgenstein, but the idea goes all the way back to Genesis 1. Words and language create possibilities. Words and language create worlds of experience we could not have without them. Perhaps most often you've heard this referred to when people talk about the, 
multiple words for snow that an Eskimo has because they're able to experience more of the world. There's actually a debate about that, believe it or not, but there's not about this idea that the words that we have enable us to experience things we would not know of or experience otherwise. Words and language create worlds. And sometimes the language that we have will create a world of hope that did not exist before. Sometimes the language we experience when we come together as the people of God will create a world of possibility or opportunity that we didn't see before. And sometimes the language of Scripture will give a conviction for a better way to go or healthier way to go or a different way to go than we thought about before. And you see this literally in the story. Jesus starts out by giving them language from Scripture and then from his own mouth that opens up a world of hope they did not know when they walked in the synagogue that day. By the way, do you see Jesus submitting to the rhythm of their church? He didn't pick the book that was being read. That, they, they read Torah and they read prophets. It says they handed him the scroll of Isaiah. He said, great, I can work with that. <laughs> and he flipped to this glorious language. Can you imagine being there that day? And when he started taking these ancient words and putting it in that present moment, an entire world of hope was opened up. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, he said, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, good news for the poor, and to declare that God's jubilee, that's what it refers to, the year of the Lord's favor is right now. Perhaps you've heard of that before. You know, so maybe some of the stories in the Old Testament, there was... There were commands about a year of jubilee. Every 50 years, everybody would be set free. Everything would be set free. Wouldn't it be great? All student loan is gone. <laughs> anything you owe is gone. Anything, anything holding your body or your life captive, it was all set free. And as best as we could tell, throughout Jewish history, they never did it. So for centuries, they've been waiting for something like this. And Jesus says, Yes, today, <laughs> today this is fulfilled in your hearing, and this year, this now, is the time of God's great jubilee. Can you imagine that? By the way, we just kind of rush past this. It is so hard for us to grasp how jaw-droppingly staggering this would be for a carpenter to stand up in the synagogue and say, this scripture is true, and it's true in me. By the way, I used to work really hard to try to imagine kind of an American version of this, to kind of get it through to my students when I taught at, at Lipscomb or LCU. Um, and I did this several years. It was horrible. But I, I remember I would come in, and this is, you know, halfway through the semester. They know me, and I'm goofy and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I, I came in. This was back when, you know, the war on terror is raging in a different way, and we're looking for Osama and all that. So this is the way I literally introduced this text. I, you know, I came in, and I said, look, you, you think I'm a preacher, and you think I'm a professor, but I'm actually not. You guys know I'm a lawyer, too. I said, um, so, you know, actually, I work for the CIA, and I haven't been able to tell you that, and I'm leading a task force that's trying to get Osama, and I just want to tell you first that we got him. <laughs> it's horrible. It's horrible. But I'm like, how can, I, how can I get the feeling of what it was like? <laughs> I love it, Jerry. You love it. How do you get the feeling of what it's like to be waiting for all of this time for something to happen, and then the weirdest person in the world to come in and just say, hey, that's happening today, and it's me. Jesus used language here 
to create a world of hope that none of them knew was possible when they came in the door. The other thing he did is he created conviction, didn't he? A world of conviction to live a different way. He could have left the sermon alone. Don't you think he should have just kind of stopped? Good, good sermon, preacher. <laughs> Here's one of the things. I, I, I was studying this this week, and I was just thinking, I, I love just reading a text and thinking, even an atheist would appreciate this. You don't even have to believe that Jesus is Lord to appreciate this man. He comes in. How many times have we seen this in the story already? And the news about him is spreading. And he's getting more and more popular. More likes on social media. It's great experience. And then Jesus dials it up a little bit and makes everybody frustrated. And they're furious at it by the end of the story. Why? Because he loves them enough to tell them the truth. And he doesn't ride on the popularity. Don't you love this man? He is not content with shallow and superficial admiration. He wants them to be all in. So he tells them a couple of stories from Scripture. Do you remember Elijah and Elisha, he said? And there were all sorts of needs in Israel, and God showed up powerfully, but the problem is the folks in the synagogue and the folks in the church didn't get it. And they got what he was saying, that it's possible, oh, this great year of Jubilees happening, and I might not get in on it, and they tried to throw him off the cliff. By the way, he just strolled out. <laughs> His time wasn't yet. But you hear him using the language of Scripture and the stories of Scripture to reframe the world in their mind. Whether or not they chose to follow it, we don't know, but he will convict us when we gather in the synagogues of our day and submit ourselves to the story of Scripture and to the prayers that we pray and hear and see. See, here's the powerful thing to me. When we come to worship, what we're doing is we're turning our attention to what is ultimately true and real. And we do it by a very simple thing that we don't think about a whole lot. We do it by repetition and habit and custom. You know, repetition gets kind of a bad rap sometimes. Jesus, let me be very clear, Jesus never condemned repetition. What did he condemn? vain repetition, empty repetition. He didn't condemn repetition. He did it himself all the time. Maybe some of you have come across the, the book, the bestseller book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, and and who, who knows about the numbers, but we know the principle is true. What, what Gladwell says is it takes about 10,000 hours to become a master at anything. 10,000 hours you want to become proficient, I mean, not just proficient, but a master at a musical instrument or a, or a foreign language or whatever your profession may be, you give yourself to it. By the way, they, they calculate the numbers. That's three hours a day for nine years. You become a master at anything by repetition, healthy repetition. And that's what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's showing us that something that we do again and again and again shapes us and trains us, informs us, listen to me, in ways we may not even realize in the moment. We're just out throwing the softball and the world's about to change. I think a great example of this is this little church in France, Les Chambons. Especially now with what's going on in the world, I just I love the story of this little church. From 1940 to 1944, for four years, they risked their lives to take care of refugees coming out of Nazi Germany. They put their lives on the line. Tiny little church. This small little church, God used to save over 5,000 people in four years. Now, here's the thing. If you go look at church historians that looked into this, why did they do that? 
Because they made a commitment some decades before to be sold out in their worship to depth at looking at the life and the story and the mission of God. They read extensive scripture in their churches. They prayed spontaneous prayers, but they also prayed scripture again and again. They prayed prayers that had been prayed for 2,000 years. They gave themselves to worship in such a way when the moment happened, they couldn't help but to live out the story, listen to me, that they had rehearsed for 20 years. Here's the way one historian puts it. In their worship, the love they preached was not simply adoration. Nor was it simply a love of moral purity, of keeping one's hands clean of evil. It was not a love of private ecstasy, important in today's world, or a private retreat from evil. Listen to this. It was an active, dangerous love that brought help to those who needed it most. Why did they risk their lives? Because they had practiced and repeated the story of a God who gave his life every Sunday they gathered in that little church and it changed the world. So I, just before we finish, I just want to think about even, even bigger than this. We think about this power of this place. Did you know that before the synagogue was a place, it was a vision? Before it was a place, it was a vision, a dream in the mind of God. Oh, I know I said it's not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. The synagogue is a gathering place. But from the beginning, God had in mind a gathering of people that would be set apart that could change the world. And so here's some examples of those passages. In Genesis 17, God renames Abram and calls him Abraham, the father of many. Why? Because he says, I'm going to be fruitful in your life in such a way that you won't just have one nation that comes out of you. It won't just be about Israel. The Lord knows it won't simply be about the United States or anybody else. It says many nations will come from you. God had a dream when he called Abraham from the beginning to make a gathering that is worldwide of people that are sold out for him. We see the word, by the way, of synagogue it's just not a place yet. It's a dream. Look in Psalm 50. It says the mighty one, God, the Lord. He speaks and summons the earth. And it says, let me transliterate it for you. Synagogue to me, this concentrated people. Gather to me these set apart people. And at the end of time, what is God going to do? In Revelation 7, 9, it says, after this, John looks into the heavenly court there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne of the Lamb. God has always had a dream of an assembly, and he's been gathering it over the course of time through his son, Jesus Christ. So I want you to think about that when we're thinking of these things. Every time we gather here, it is a sacred moment. And it's not just sacred because we're doing powerful things. The writer of Hebrews wants us to know that we don't just gather here alone. You've heard of the cloud of witnesses before. How about this as a verse? Can you imagine this going on? We are just doing our routine, and sometimes we're unaware of the significance of the moment. Hebrews 12, 22. But you've come to a different mountain than the Old Testament mountain, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come, can you picture it, to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly 
Where? To the church of the firstborn. Did you realize that every time we gather in this room, we do not gather alone? The entire throne room of heaven is already engaging in the worship of our God. And it's not just those. The cloud of witnesses are here. For some of you, this is so precious and powerful. Everyone who has gone before us is with us today. I remember going to the funeral of a friend of mine's granddaughter. All funerals are hard. That's a hard one. I'll never forget what he said when we were taking communion. He said, there is no time on planet Earth when we are closer to the ones who have gone before us than in communion. Why? Because Jesus is alive and all of his people are at the table. They are with us as we speak and as we sing and as we pray. This room is not just us. It may be routine. We may be casually just coming into the room, but it is not casual to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords when we summon his name and his people are gathered. You're stepping into God's very vision in this moment. So please don't underestimate what happens right here, right now. This gathering on Sunday matters. What we do in this moment really matters. Have you heard this before? Listen to me. I'm not making anything like magic about the building, okay? I'm not talking about that. At the same time, though, space is sacred. I'm not just talking about like the building itself. You've heard this before, right? Do you know places have memories to them? Do they not? I like to think of places that we gather in again and again, and they have echoes to them when we come. Friend Robert Benson writes a book called In Constant Prayer, and he talked about a period of time where his life fell apart, anxiety, depression, all sorts of things he was, he was facing. So he went on this extended spiritual retreat, and part of what they did is they went to an old chapel, and they worshiped like three or four times a day. And this is what he writes. Hear this, but as I read about his chapel, I want you to think about this place and the predecessor of this place and this church for 100 years. Not about us, but about God. This is what he says. It was the way all old campground chapels should be. The place has been there since the 30s, I think. And as my father might say, there was laughter in those walls. And there were tears and prayers and praises and hymns and shouts and sorrows in there too. I cannot fully express what it meant to pray 20 times a week with those brothers and sisters. I want you to imagine doing this yourself right now. If I sit still enough though, just now, though, I can still hear them singing. Singing the psalms and saying their prayers and making their way through their worship together with care and joy. That's true right here every week, too. I feel your husband preach when I'm up here. For he, I've never met him. I never heard a sermon. But I feel it in the room when I preach in a place where your minister loved your people. And your people loved him back. I feel Dan's sermons. I stand here. I wasn't here for these, but I... I can imagine the tears that were cried in funerals where you celebrate the life of a person living well in this place. It's in here. I see the smiles and the laughter of weddings that have taken place and baptisms that had happened here and all of the times that somebody walked in this room not thinking there was reason to live and they found Jesus in this room. 
It's not about the building. It's about the God who inhabits places and the memories sing on. And we come and we come and we come. Do you realize what you're doing every week you gather here? You're adding adding your voice to the echoes that have come from those who have come before us and you are projecting faith to those who are not yet here. Don't ever underestimate what we do when we just show Glorious Father God, you are here. You're everywhere. But I love that your son came and showed us that a, an old pile of rocks that ends up being a gathering place for the people of God becomes the sacred moment when people show up again and again and again. We can never predict the moments where we see it, but you are always here. And I thank you for your presence in this church throughout the years and your presence in this world for the years to come. Father, we submit and surrender and we show up today believing that your Holy Spirit will train us and change us and create worlds of possibility we didn't even know were out there just when we step into the rhythm and routine of your son's life. Father, let us do that and propel us into service in the world as you always have. In the name of Jesus, we pray.